0: Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. If you are a return listener, I'd be grateful for your rating or review. And if you dig this episode, give us a like or share. And now, whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place my guest this episode is a cognitive performance specialist for the first special forces group in tacoma washington where he trains green beret soldiers mental skills to perform at their best when things matter the most he has over nine years experience working with the united states army he's a certified mental performance consultant he is the owner of elite mentality llc welcome to the elevate podcast brett sandwick Good. Excited to have you on. I guess just to start out, uh, love to hear kind of the genesis of how you got into mental performance coaching and how you got into it and and tell people a little bit about all that you do now.
1: Absolutely. Uh, My story is not the sexiest story. Uh, First of all, I love helping people and I love sports. So when I was in undergrad, I knew majoring in psychology, I needed to do something else. So looked at the drop down menu, saw the field of sports psychology and really just dove in from there at Washington State University. Um, I actually found out that we had a sports psychologist at Washington State, uh, created a program um, and and a class for myself there at Washington State that I did independently. And Dr. Sarah Ulrich French recommended me to Florida State University as one of the top programs. Uh, So that's where I got started. And then after that, I got my master's in sports psychology from Florida State and then went uh, straight as a contractor into the Army for the last Mm -hmm. 10 years. So I currently am the mental strength coach for First Special Forces Group out in Tacoma, Washington, and then also have my private practice of elite mentality. Right on. Uh, Very cool. What
0: was the you know, the experience at FSU's program, what was maybe some of the best takeaways you got there? And then maybe some of the gaps you still felt like you had to, to go get when it comes to mental performance?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that Florida State did such a good job of was instilling the theory in you. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of mental performance consultants go in with their past knowledge of what worked for them. And those are a lot of the books that you see of but people writing about sports psychology that maybe don't have the background, they really go, Hey, what worked best for me? And maybe that that's going to work best for other people as well. However, we need to understand the theory behind sports psychology. And that's where Dr. Eklund, Dr. Tendenbaum, Dr. Eccles, um, are world-class in the field of sports psychology and really got to, got to learn from them. Uh, Dr. Craig Chow, um, Greg Chow um, was there for a while, really um, built the legacy and continued the legacy. Dr. Eccles came back. Um, I think that the challenge there was Florida State is an R1 institution, which means that it's all about research. Mm -hmm. Now it was challenging, but absolutely possible to then get into the applied field of sports psychology. So we had classes on your own on every Tuesday night. So I would say that that used to be a challenge at Florida State, and they've done a really good job lately. Um, I graduated about 10 years ago, but everything I've heard lately of really instilling applied sports psychology. And, I mean, Tallahassee has, I think, 70,000 college students. So not only is there Florida State University where you might not, be lucky to work with any of those student athletes, but they also have Tallahassee community college that I had the pleasure of, of working with their softball team when I was there. Um, so it's just, it's a great overall university that really instills that that theory in you. Nice.
0: What, uh, you talked about helping people and and talk about your own practice. You work with, uh, I think a range range of athletes, but, uh, can you talk about, you know, when it comes to mental skills and a range of ages and talents and from maybe kid athletes, youth athletes, high school athletes to military, um, the kind of the, the variance that, that you see and you deal with?
1: Yeah. So I would say the majority of my work is done probably with high school age athletes. Um, I work with a number of club teams, high school teams, um, more college players and professional players than yeah. teams themselves. But I would say the average age is probably 16 to 18 years old when they know, hey, I recognize that my mentality is really going to get me to that next level and I need to not leave this by chance. I need to deliberately train it. Yeah. And do you,
0: where do you see kind of mental performance? I think we've seen it kind of just start to become more mainstream I don't know for lack of better terms over the last decade. Um, I mean, I think fifteen, ten, fifteen 10, 15 years ago, you just didn't see that integration with high school, even a lot of times at the college level. Um, wh- where do you see kind of the profession growing uh, in the next five to 10 years?
1: Yeah, I think what's fascinating, it seems like it's, it's a lot like the field of strength conditioning. Um, it seems like in the past that the coach was responsible for the strength program within the high school or college or professional. Um, that same kind of trajectory is, is happening with sports psychology, but the thing that, that we really have to do is make sure that the people who are talking about sports psychology are qualified. Um, because in my experience, either working with professional athletes, uh, Green Berets, or sometimes college players, They might have had a bad experience with sports psychology, and that's not good. Um, We really need to make sure that these individuals are qualified. And and the same thing is true of a CSCS within strength and conditioning. They have a certification where they have to go through a number of hours. They have to take an exam. Um, I think the great thing about sports psychology is that more people are learning from it, but they're also seeing that this is a viable market to then talk about the mental side and, and maybe especially the, the business individuals of, Hey, here's, here's a great opportunity. Maybe I don't have any background of it, but I played sports. So I'm just going to use my experience. Sure. So I know the association of applied sports psychology is trying to kind of protect the field. So I think absolutely amazing where it's going. However, as you see with, with strength coaches, okay, what's the difference between a personal trainer and then a strength coach? And then who does a college hire? Right. They obviously have certain criteria, certain certifications that they look for to know that this person is legitimate in the field. Sure. And that's not to say that some individuals that don't have an education are not qualified. It just kind of weeds out, um, the masses that are trying to then just say that they support psychology.
0: Right. Agreed. Um, when you work with the teenagers, a lot of our audience kind of around that age, a lot of our listeners or coaches of that age. Um, what's one of the first mental skills you, you sometimes notice that they need a little, little work on or maybe a, a greater depth of understanding.
1: Yeah. I think the biggest thing is, overthinking, which is, is kind of funny because as a mental performance consultant, we then have people think about their thinking. And people are always like, okay, Brett, you're, you're making me think too much. But if we can slow things down and really understand what that thought process is, um, I've learned from, from Dr. Hacker kind of a three-step approach. Um, I was able to to teach for her this last year while she was on sabbatical is kind of the first step is being self-aware. You have to know like either what you're thinking, um, what you're doing and be self-aware of that. Second step is the ability to change. So when you are overthinking, do you have the ability to change? And then the third step is actually being unaware. Is this your habit that you've created? And so many times we have to slow people down to then have them be aware that they're overthinking and then being able to simplify things to just really focus in on that one thing so that their mind is not searching for everything. Um, Cause in, in my experience, the overthinking happens when somebody doesn't have a confident plan. They're kind of searching everywhere for these different thoughts but they're not committed to one and so that's why they're having maybe tens or hundreds of thoughts in in a number of seconds because they really don't know where their attention needs to be at that right time so if we can start to simplify that down and just hey let's focus in on one thing that tends to be like a huge component that a lot of people come come see me for um, i think the answer for them tends to be confidence. So they tend, whether the parent or the coach comes to me, hey, Brett, I want more confidence. However, confidence could be 30 or 40 different aspects of it. And we need to simplify it and really find through like a needs analysis, what is that component of confidence that is going to be most beneficial to this person? Sure.
0: You're talking, speaking there, you know, sometimes there's this element, a lot of times in other training and in, in sports training, it's more is more, right? We're often sometimes in, in the mental training, sometimes less is more. Uh, when you talk about just kind of narrowing that focus, do you find that to become an increasing, more difficult thing for student athlete ages to understand in the complex kind of world that they're grown up in?
1: Absolutely. I think, it's, I think it's both from the student athlete and from our perspective as mental performance consultants. We want to give people new information. We want to constantly talk about, okay, we just talked about confidence. Let's talk about um, the ability to focus, the ability to perform under pressure. And we're constantly giving them more. However, as we're giving them more and maybe they're thinking about it, now we're causing them to overthink. And so I just had a conversation with um, Corey Schaefer down at Clemson. He's with uh, Amplos down there. And he was talking about some of of his work. and, And we were just talking about like this exact topic is why does a football player work on passing every day? Why do they work on maybe a basketball player on dribbling? The same thing needs to be applied with mental skills, is we can't just introduce all these different components and really make something too complex. Now they don't have that thing to either work on or to focus in on. So I think it needs to be a part of the training itself. Mental skills can't just be done in a classroom or on a one-on-one session. It needs to be embedded within the practice but it also needs to be worked on really every single day. So whether that's breath control, whether that's performing under pressure, whether that's focus, it really needs to be honed in on during practice so that during the game, that person does not think they just go back to their training. And some environments are really good at that and really promote that as the coach others, it's all up to the player to really have a goal for that day, to work on something that day. And, and depending on what level I'm working with, um, whether it's like a college football coach, I will have them re- emphasize those components to sure. reinforce the practice. Or if I'm working just with the individual player, it's really all up to them. Yeah. They need to be able to control that environment to then work on that mental skills training.
0: I think it's interesting as I hear you talk too, cause I think there's it, it, it just an analogy. If you know, if you're going to go work on throwing a football, you're not going to go sit in a classroom and talk about throwing a football. Right. Absolutely. And, and there's an element that's probably useful in maybe some of that classroom, but too often mental skills, sports psychology gets put into a classroom, not where it's going to be put to use or where it's needed. Um, how do you work sometimes with a coach or maybe a team if there's this maybe maybe a disconnect between why you want to do something on a field versus shouldn't you be telling them and talking to them in a classroom, Brett?
1: Yeah, it, I think um, what we've done with Special Forces is a perfect example. Is like we can talk about that. we can We can talk in a classroom. However, let's embed it to their physical training. So let's just say you want to improve decision making reaction time, spatial reasoning, whatever your kind of component as a coach, let's embed that within the training. And all it's going to take is two to five minutes. Now, after they get some experience doing that, maybe we then talk about slowing that down and giving them some strategies, or we kind of throw it out there as, Hey, do you want to get better at this thing? And then we're here as that one-on-one coach. So I think that the answer is to embed it within the physical training, whether you've taught it first or you're kind of having them have that experiential learning so that when they come back to you, they have more to talk about.
0: Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, visualization is always something I think kids are trying to work on Are there some keys that you focus on when you're, when you're teaching kids or teams how to visualize as they prepare? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that I wait on visualization or imagery for a while when I, when I'm talking with an athlete, Partly, in my eyes, people know about sports psychology as goal setting and they know about visualization. And so like, if I'm just giving them those two, they're like, hey, yeah, Brett, I already know about this. Um, but to answer your question, when I talk about imagery, big pieces of vividness. Do you have that vividness of imagery, those different senses? Can you experience, let's just say that that hear um, the auditory sense very well? Can you see? Some people actually, I've learned that they, They can't really see an image, but they experience the imagery through the other senses. So it feels real and their body senses this is real, but they don't have a very good sight as it relates to closing their eyes and seeing that thing. Um, But then I would say the biggest thing, TJ, would be the controllability. Any athlete can tell me, oh, yeah, yeah. I saw that, I saw that free throw go in, or I saw that serve go over the net, um, but really we've created um, some, some opportunities for people to have to rotate images in their head, and then there's an answer. Mm-hmm. So can you control this image to then be able to see which of these answers are correct? And that to me is, is huge. Um, And and part of the reason why I don't talk about visualization right away is because a lot of people see the wrong thing. Mm. So they see themselves messing up because they don't have that skill. And then when they go to that performance, all they're going to do is have an increased likelihood to mess up because they've replayed this bad image over and over in their head. And then now they're just going to revert back to kind of like muscle memory of, okay, yep, I remember the situation, I'm gonna then start freaking out. So, as much as we can, slowing it down to talk about controllability. Um, going back to kind of a previous point that we talked about is a lot of athletes have a tough time just being in a classroom and then being like, okay, hey, let's look at, let's do five practice serves. And they're like, ah, oh, man, like, it's kind of hard to see. Well, let's make it a little bit easier right after you serve, go ahead and close your eyes and imagine one going in, right? And so like, if we then slow things down to meet people where they're at and just slowly start to build that skill, then they are going to be able to manipulate that image in their mind.
0: Yeah, love it. Um, Talked about, you know, sometimes performance coaches yearning to teach there's also i think always most people i've met and been able to have on this podcast are, there's a yearning for learning um is there uh coaches or, or authors or some people that you currently look towards or in the past you look towards to to continually learn from in the field
1: yeah i think justin Sua does a phenomenal job of putting on a podcast um oh. for the masses he does a very good job i think it's his podcast started you know about like 10, 15 minutes. Now he does kind of like a five minute podcast. And then also with ESPN or uh, sports illustrated that he just started putting on. So that's, that's one that yeah. I, I was lucky to start the army position right as he was kind of leaving the door. So I had an opportunity to meet him down in San Antonio when he was still working with the army. Um, and he just delivers information very well yeah uh, other people i look to look up to kind of in the areas dr hacker um, i have have the privilege of guest speaking in her class for the last five years and then teaching for her for the uh for last year both undergraduate and graduate while she was on sabbatical uh dr shannon baird is one within the special operations community that has an amazing vast of knowledge um, in the research side, but also in applying sports psychology. Um, Those are kind of the three that, whether it's mainstream of of Justin Sua or just like kind of back channels of learning from them. Um, Also, Dr. Joe Beyer, um, he was with Navy Special Operations. Um, Now he's down in in Arizona. Just chatting with him and and really bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, I think what's huge is if you're in the field of sports psychology, having those people that you, you bounce ideas off of and you really try to try to continuously develop. And I think that that's the challenge if it's just a private practice, because you might be quote unquote competing with other people. However, there's so many athletes that are, are really looking for sports psychology that you have to be able to collaborate with other people to get some best practices.
0: Yeah. I think you even see, I think some of the, whether it's major league baseball or a lot of top college programs, there's, there's a handful of different people, um, you know, working together to, to work with the teams and improve performance. If, uh, you could jump into a time machine, Brett, and go visit 16 year old you and, uh, give yourself one piece of advice to your teenage self, what would you go back and remind yourself? I
1: would just say going for it and kind of being in the moment, not, not looking so far ahead. Um, And I think that that's an ability that I've realized over the years. And then also have been teaching is like, let's stay in the present moment. Let's enjoy this moment while you have it. We tend to look back And kind of see the things that we used to have, or we're we're working towards a goal. And that's what makes a lot of these professional athletes so successful is, okay, constantly work for the goal. Um, And one of the things that I actually teach is like, hey, train like you're in second, compete like you're in first. So we constantly think that we're not good enough. And we're constantly thinking about the future. But being able to have that ability to just really be in that present moment, I think would be the absolute biggest thing that I would just kind of um, wish that I would have known back then. Sure.
0: Last question as we kind of wrap up, if I uh, gave you a magic wand and uh, you wave your magic wand and tomorrow every student athlete and coach that's listening or out there has inherited an integrated mental skill, what, what would you wish upon them with your magic wand?
1: Yeah, I would probably say confidence. Uh, Confidence is key. Confidence helps control our attention, helps control our arousal control, overthinking. And what tends to happen, um, and this is something that I didn't realize until I started working with professional athletes a number of years ago, um, and also Green Berets, is we think that the higher up that people get, the more confidence that they have. But it's not always the case, because as you get higher and higher up, you're also comparing yourself to those higher and higher individuals. Mm. Yeah, sure, you are way better than your high school teammate who never made it to college ball or professional ball. But you, as a maybe first-round draft pick, are now comparing yourself to the Tom Brady's of the world or whoever it is And now your confidence tends to start to dip. And so I would just really promote that that idea of who are you comparing yourself to? And is that beneficial? Because your perception is your reality. And if you're comparing yourself to the wrong person, that might be detrimental to your confidence and really impact your ability to perform. And so if we're just going off natural talent, sure, in high school, you could have got away with it. But as you get higher and higher, now you have to have that right mentality and that confidence to really go in and play your best game.